I want to turn this morning to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, and pick up where we were three weeks ago in Galatians, and consider a subject that I think is very important and very relevant to all of our lives at his home for all of us. In the Life of Christ series in Zambia, we go through all four Gospels at the same time in harmony format. So you cover almost the whole first four books of the New Testament, which is a challenging, daunting task. You don't get every jot and tittle in, but you get most of it in. Uh, but you come down uh, eventually midweek somewhere in there to Matthew chapter 18, and it gives us what I think is good background for what we want to look at in Galatians this morning. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about confronting uh, people that have either sinned against you or people that are in sin and what to do about that. It's a kind of a one, two, three, four logical approach of Jesus giving direction to bringing restoration to problems in the life of the church. If someone is trapped in significant sin patterns that can and do spiritually defeat that individual or that can and uh, do physically or spiritually harm others or that can spread through the life of other people or that defeat the testimony of the church. When those kind of things are going on, then Jesus said, no less a source than Jesus said, go quietly one-on-one -on -one to that person and address the issue. With the minimum public exposure, just go and address it and see what resolution to the problem you can bring. If there's no repentant response, Jesus said, take uh, one or two witnesses with you. One, two, three, four people. Uh, go as a small group and address the same issue with the hope that that individual will then be repentant and responsive. Jesus said, if there's no clear repentance at that point, you take the matter before the church, which might be just the leadership of the church or the whole church community, but you address the issue as a church because this person is in significant sin and unrepentant. If the person will not listen, Jesus says uh, that to, uh, um, after collective encouragement and confrontation by the church, if that person will not listen, Jesus says, let him be to you as a, quote, this is Jesus' words, a Gentile or a tax collector. A Gentile just meant a non, like a non-Jew. Uh, Jesus is all about reaching Gentiles, of course, through the Great Commission. Uh, but in that language, in that context, it means unbelievers. Let that person be to you as uh, an unresponsive unbeliever or a tax collector, which was the worst thing a man could be in that culture in that day. So he says, if there's no response, you do that. <clears throat> you distance yourself as a church. Not conclusively, but you do that. Now, there are three purposes, I think, for Jesus' instruction. And he doesn't spell those out for us. But I think this is where he's going with that. First of all, there is the duty of the church and the opportunity of the Christian community to restore that individual. That's the first goal. When the church addresses somebody that's got a problem, it's not to be hypocritical or condemning or self-righteous. It's to restore the individual. And that's Jesus' first goal of his instructions in Matthew 18. Secondly, uh, it stops the spread of acceptance or participation in that same activity by other church members. If it's not addressed, other people in the church 
grow comfortable with that, and they begin to live that out in their own experience, or at least condone. Thirdly, uh, Jesus' directives in Matthew 18 guard the testimony of the church and the cause of Christ and their witness outside the church. The world is watching the church to find out what Jesus is about. And so our testimony must be clear and consistent and God-honoring. Well, that's Matthew 18, and you can study that further on your own, and we've covered that in, uh, in here many times. But let's let that serve as backdrop to what we see in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It's a strange passage. Uh, some people have really struggled with what happens here and tried to explain it away, but it's pretty obvious to me what goes on. It says, now when Cephas... That's another name for Peter or Simon Peter. There's no doubt about that, I don't think. It really comes from the Aramaic Kepha. If you watch the Passion of the Christ movie, Jesus uh, and others are calling out to Peter. Instead of saying Peter or Petros or using the Greek or English, they will call out Kepha. Uh, and that's what we translate into English as Cephas. And Cephas came down to Antioch, the third largest, busiest city of the Roman world, a very international city that shows up in the book of Acts, and lots of Baptist churches are named for it. It says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, this is a shocking scenario in which you have the apostle Paul confronting the apostle Peter publicly about something going on in Peter's life. Wow. Paul, you know, couldn't you have done that privately? And I think there's reason why he did it exactly the way he did. Uh, was Paul wrong? No, I think Paul was right. I think Paul was living out in first century church life what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 18. But when Cephas or Simon Peter comes down to Antioch, you're really going north, but it's downhill. So he comes to Antioch, to this growing, emerging, exciting church, uh, the church at Jerusalem, it had its glory days of Pentecost, but the, the real momentum that would carry the gospel to the world would come through Antioch with these internationals that think internationally. Paul says, I opposed him, uh, really, literally, according to face, or I, in his face. Uh, I didn't talk about him, I talked to him. I was not obscure or, or unclear. I talked directly to him about the issue because... Uh, he had a pattern that was not commendable. It was condemnable. For prior to coming, uh, the coming of certain men from James, uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus who's back up at Jerusalem. And James, you see in the book of Acts, becomes the pastor of the mother church at Jerusalem. In Acts 15, he's the presiding elder and the senior pastor of the church there, and the apostles come before him and give testimony Prior to the coming of certain men from James, and I don't think that they came with messages from James or what they do here uh, is a reflection of the theology of James, or James would have spoken about that in the book of Acts, and he doesn't, or in his letter, and he doesn't. It just means they came down from James's church back at Jerusalem. He, that is Peter, Cephas, used to eat with the Gentiles, the non-Jewish believers that have come to the community of Christ at Antioch. 
But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. In the party of the circumcision, you can find commentaries that will interpret that uh, several different ways. Basically, the long and the short of it is these are people, I think, that are Christians or at least professing Christians who are trying to require all Christians to become good Jews before they become good Christians. And so they have pharisaically, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they've imposed a whole group of rules and activities and actions that one must participate in before they become Christians. So here come these uh, circumcision party Pharisaic Christians from Jerusalem down to Antioch, the buzzing international church with all the people from all the cultures blended in there together. And Paul says, I confronted him. I, I had to because before they showed up, Peter enjoyed good fellowship with everybody that was there without problem. Uh, he enjoyed the people of all the cultures. Peter had been led by the Holy Spirit to go to Caesarea and witness to Roman soldiers from the Gentile world. And he had been instructed directly by God, don't call unclean anything that I call clean. And by that meant God, God meant Gentile folk that needed to be reached with the gospel. And Peter had all that in his head. But something happens when the Jerusalemites show up at Antioch, and he just instinctively does what all of us have done probably at some point in time. He begins to modify his behavior in regards to the Gentile Christians on the basis of the presence of the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. He's gone from being uninhibited and excited about what's going on at Antioch to now he's backing off and he's reserved. And so there's a mixed signal coming from Peter's life. One of my favorite people that I've never met is Simon Peter. I can't wait to meet Peter someday. What a great man in the Bible. I don't think he was the first pope, with all respect to our Catholic friends, but he was a great church leader, uh, built the early church in many ways, greatly used of God, and in some ways he was Jesus' best friend. So I have the highest respect. But somehow, just like we do sometimes, <clears throat> he begins to make some bad choices or act a little inconsistently. Doesn't sound like an infallible pope, does it? It just sounds like a human being who, as Paul says to the Romans, sins and comes short of the glory of God. And so Paul speaks as one sinner to another and says, Peter, what you're doing isn't making sense. These guys have come from Jerusalem and, and you've changed since they've gotten here because you used to love these folks from North Africa and South Europe and Asia, and they've all come in here to the international city, and you used to love those people and sit down beside them at the table and share meals and conversation, and it just came naturally to you. Now, what's changed? Why is your behavior modified? I want to suggest to you again and emphasize, I think Paul is doing exactly, exactly what Jesus directed the church to do, and he's confronting Peter about that because, first of all, he wants to restore Peter to Peter's glory, to the fullness of what Simon Peter can be. Simon Peter is going to be, if not the greatest, in a tie with Paul and John for the greatest church leader of the first century. He's going to write in the New Testament. He's going to be an inspiration to lots and lots of us for 2,000 years. And so Paul 
knowing that and caring about Peter, there's no adversarial relationship between them, whatever. But caring about Peter, he wants to see Simon Peter be all that God wants Peter to be. And so he confronts him to restore him uh, to that cutting-edge missionary spirit that Peter had. Secondly, he doesn't want it to spread. We're going to see how it spreads in a moment. And Paul is concerned that Peter's choices now in the presence of the Pharisaic believers, uh, that it's going to become contagious and other people are going to start acting like Peter. And they do, and, and Paul can see it happening. And then, of course, Paul is concerned for the testimony of the church to the international community that's coming to the church and to the international community that's out there beyond the church. What are these folks going to think if they see Simon Peter, Cephas, not aggressively, deliberately caring about them as individuals and as a group? So he says, fearing the party or the circumcision, he acts that way. Fearing. God forbid that we would make big choices in life about ministry and family life and church life and business that we would make big decisions on the basis of fearing what other people think to the neglect of what God thinks. And if you want to pound something into the heads of your children and your grandchildren, get that in their head. Fear God. And don't worry about peer pressure because peer pressure will ruin your life. And probably everybody in the room has sampled that somewhere along the trail of life to some degree. And some of you may be wrestling with that today. Uh, several weeks ago when I was here, I, <clears throat> I mentioned on a Sunday night, that there are advantages to getting on along the trail of life because you reach a point where you don't care as much anymore about what people think. You care increasingly about what God thinks. Paul is just consumed with the will of God and glorifying God. And he said, Peter, you're better than that. And you will be better than that. And you're going to go on to reach the world. And, and he would go for Antioch and eventually to Rome and, and die as a Christian martyr, a glorious death. And Paul is concerned with restoring Peter to being his very best. Since the rest of the Jews joined in the hypocrisy. You've heard word studies about uh, hypocrisy. The word hypocrite is an actor. It's when you act like you're a Christian, but on the inside, something's not right. And he says, even some of the other Jews or Jewish believers at Antioch joined him in that hypocrisy. So where you, you had people, they're all eating together and enjoying Christian fellowship. And, and now you got the internationals over here and the Jewish Christians over here, and they begin to eat at separate tables. You can go to Africa today on a trip like I just went on, and if you're not deliberate, you can find yourself sitting and talking to Americans to the exclusion of the Africans that you've gone over there to minister to. It just is a thing that happens. It's almost instinctive. And so the Jewish Christians are in this corner of the fellowship hall, and the internationals are in this corner of the fellowship hall, and Paul is saying, yikes, there's one church, and we've got to, we've got to be better than that and rise above it. He says, the Jews joined in the hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. No wonder Paul was upset. By the time uh, this is written, Barnabas has already gone on missionary journeys with Paul. 
they have gone into tough territory and been stoned and beaten and gone through incredible experiences to reach not just Jews that happen to be in those places, but to reach the nations with the gospel. He says, this little pattern, this little tendency, this little veering to the right, even Barnabas started acting like that. Even Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. Uh, he was a blessing to people of all kinds of backgrounds, and even he is influenced by what Paul sees going on in Peter's life. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, uh, Paul maybe is jumping over some steps, but he goes right to the top and makes it a church-wide issue. He says, all right, church, let's talk about this. Let's get it out on the table. Let's deal with it. Let's be honest with each other about all this. And then Paul says, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, that describes Peter's life before the people came down from Jerusalem, if you've learned to live as an international believer set free by the gospel of Christ, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, how is it that you're beginning to call these Gentiles not so much to Jesus, but back to a bunch of rules that come out of the Old Testament text that are somewhat misunderstood and misinterpreted? How is it that you're imposing this on them when uh, a few days ago you were set free in Jesus by the gospel? How are you now compelling these Gentiles to modify who they are? And we're not talking about sin problems, just we're talking cultural issues. How is it you're compelling these Gentiles to become Jews so they can become Christians. Paul's saying, and he's right, Paul is absolutely right, it doesn't make sense, it's inconsistent. And then he begins, uh, and it's another whole subject, and you could transition here, and next Sunday we'll pick this up, so we'll just address it very briefly this morning. But he talks about what it means to really be a Christian and what genuine conversion is and how free the grace of God is and when the grace of God liberates somebody from their past into Christ, into the cause of Christ, <clears throat> they don't need to carry around a lot of Jewish baggage or Georgia baggage, American baggage, or anything else. They are free in Christ. Paul says, we are Jews by nature. That's how we were born. That's, that's who we were. Paul was. He was Saul of Tarsus with a very Jewish background. Peter was, of course, Jewish Galilean fisherman by background. And so Paul says, we're Jews by nature and not sinners. And I think he would have put that in quotation marks and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, Paul loves sinners from the Gentiles. That's what he poured his life into reaching those people. He says, we were Jews just by nature, by uh, accident or providence of birth. That's who we are not sinners like the Gentiles. I can just see him uh, acting that out and uh, dwelling on that point for a moment. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, not justified, not justified by the works of the law, by law-keeping, by rule-keeping, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul should have said, through faith alone in Christ Jesus even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. 
since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What does Paul mean? For some, maybe that's obvious to you. Uh, he, he just says, you're not going to make it to heaven by rule keeping. None of you. Jerusalemites, Antioch crowd, Georgians in the 21st century, nobody's going to get to heaven by keeping the rules. It doesn't work, Paul says. He pours that out in his preaching in the book of Acts, and it's all woven into the fabric of his epistles in the New Testament. Nobody gets to heaven by rule keeping. We are justified by faith in Christ, and that alone and only Christ can transform us. And he does not do that because we've merited enough favor, we've checked enough boxes, or gone enough places, are given enough. He does that in his mercy. We are justified because of our faith in Christ alone and not, he says, by the works of the law. Come on, Peter. Don't revert back to some bogus theology that teaches, maybe inadvertently or indirectly, but teaches people that they got to get back into the rule business or they're not going to make it. You need to rise up and go into the streets of Antioch and into the streets of the uttermost parts of the earth and teach people that they are saved. If they are saved, they're saved strictly by the grace of God through the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Man, you can just see uh, Paul in Peter's face with the church listening. I would imagine that you could have heard a pin drop at Antioch while this was going on. This is the two biggest names in Christendom except maybe for John, and he's not there. But two of the most famous Christians that ever lived, and they're having this public showdown, mostly Paul speaking. Peter's just standing there listening, and I think falling under conviction. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? Come on, Peter, think it through. Think it through logically. <clears throat> if we say you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and then we, we revert back to something else, then um, does that make Christ a minister of the sin? Or what's, what's going on with that, Peter? Explain it. Is Christ a minister of sin? Is Christ responsible for our sin problem? And he uses this phrase that Paul likes, meganoita which translates, uh, let it never be. May it never be. We would say maybe in English, God forbid. Christ is never a minister of sin. He's a minister to sinners, but he's a, never a conveyor or a passer on of sin. <clears throat> not out of his purity. Paul says, may it never be. No, 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 no. Don't, we're not going there. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed... I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul's concerned that Peter and others will go back, having been set free in Christ, they'll go back and start to rebuild an Old Testament uh, rules-oriented faith. Even the Old Testament in its true spirit didn't do that. But they'll go back to some Pharisaic version of Old Testament theology to the neglect of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. No, no, no. We died to that, that we might live to God. I have been, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says to the listening uh, crowd at Antioch, I died. I died on Damascus Road. My body kept on going, but the old Saul of Tarsus died. And I'm alive in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. That means complete identification with Christ. And I no longer reside in the past. But Christ lives in me. And it's free and it's liberating. And it enables me to, to love and reach and sit down and have lunch with people from all over the world and be comfortable and not worry about what other people think. Not reverting back to some superficial, artificial form of religion. I'm with God who loved me and gave himself up for me completely that I might be free in Jesus Christ. One more quick verse. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, and Christ died needlessly. If we take the Christian faith and reduce it to a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts, and you got to get more things in the good column than the bad column and, and weigh it out like some pagan Egyptian theology of the past, if you, if you revert back to that, then Paul says Christ died needlessly. No, no point in the cross. You've got your own thing going, and you're just going to prove your own merit and your own self-righteousness and we all know that that doesn't work. So Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. The Christian faith on any continent, if it's the real deal, it's the same thing everywhere, and it is amazing, and it's powerful, and it's glorious. And Paul says, let there be no counterfeits, and let nothing distract us or detract us from taking the gospel to the nations and all the people groups, and once they're in, if they receive Jesus, they receive the same Jesus that you did if you indeed really received Jesus. And immediately upon conversion, they're part of your family, and you're to love them as co-equals in Christ and build them up and enjoy their fellowship. And Paul laid down his life for that principle. And pleading with Peter, and Peter got it. Peter heard that, and Peter changed. He got it. Barnabas got it. And those men redirected their lives back where they were going with Christ before, and they changed the world, and we're here today because Peter got it, and Barnabas got it, and Paul would not back down. We are part of an international community. You can call it the American church if you want to, but it's the church around the world. And when you leave this world and you go to the next you'll find a lot of Georgians and Americans missing and you'll enjoy eternity with people from the uttermost parts of the earth and it will be glorious because salvation is not about your works. It's about the grace of God through the finished work of the cross. Bow with me. Father, we are grateful this morning that you love us so profoundly. You encourage us and you have given us through your word the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that without hypocrisy, with sincerity, we will all commit our lives to evangelism and discipleship and world missions where we have a heart for people and we go and we tell them the truth when we get there. Guard our hearts from peer pressure and all the superficial things of this world. 
so that we will indeed, through our testimony, the testimony of not just what we say, but what we live, we will bear witness to the liberating power of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.